You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Rader. He's a professor of medicine, pharmacology, and pathology in laboratory medicine. He's the Edward S. Cooper, Norman Roosevelt, and Elizabeth Merriweather McClure Professor, Director of Preventive Cardiovascular Medicine and Lipid Clinic, Director of General Clinical Research Center, Associate Director of the Institute for Translational Medicine and Therapeutics, and Director of the Cardiovascular Metabolism Unit Institute for Diabetes, Obesity, and Metabolism. Dr. Rader, welcome to the show. Thanks, Larry. It's great to be with you. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics and yours, illuminating HDL. You recently published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine in November talking about whether or not HDL is still a viable therapeutic target. And the question is, is it? I think so. Obviously, it's a complicated topic. I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail. Clearly, HDL has been known as the good cholesterol for a long time because it seems to be good when you have high levels. But that's epidemiology, and translating that into treatments that raise HDL and proving that those treatments actually reduce risk of heart disease is obviously a major challenge and one that had a setback recently with this particular approach and this drug, torcetropib. Let's talk about the setback. Tell everybody what happened. Well, so I have to give a little bit of background. One of the strategies that's been looked to for raising HDL is this concept of inhibiting CTP, cholesterol ester transfer protein. This was discovered because patients in Japan who have very high levels of HDL actually have a genetic deficiency in CTP. So it turns out that if you develop a drug that inhibits CTP, you raise HDL quite substantially, actually, more than 50 up to as much as 100%. That's pretty big-time HDL raising. But disappointingly, the leading drug in this class called torcetropib, a drug developed by Pfizer, when put into a big phase three trial for looking to see if it would reduce risk of heart disease, was actually the trial was stopped early because more patients getting the drug actually had heart attacks and died. And there are potentially complex reasons for that, some of which or all of which might be related to the drug, not the mechanism. Nevertheless, this has been a major setback for the field of CTP inhibition and potentially for the field of HDL uh, raising. Well, do you think it's unique to torcetropib, the the off-target effect of raising the blood pressure and that the other CTP inhibitors that are in development may be cleaner? Well, of course, that's the multi-billion dollar question. Is this a mechanism-based effect or would a clean drug, a drug that inhibits CTP but doesn't have these other issues related to off-target effects, be actually a very good drug for reducing cardiovascular risk? I'll tell you my opinion. My opinion is that Torcetropib clearly is a drug that raises blood pressure, not related to its mechanism of CTP inhibition, has other effects probably at the level of the blood vessel, and that the events seen in this trial were probably due to the molecule, not to the mechanism. And so I happen to be someone who favors continued development of CTP inhibitors provided that they're clean and don't raise blood pressure or have these other toxic effects. Did we learn anything about what actually happened in the coronary arteries of the people that took this drug? Did it show any regression? Did it show progression? Or did it do nothing? So in parallel with this large outcome trial, which was called Illuminate, there were actually a couple different trials using IVUS of the coronaries and carotid IMT, and ultrasound technique, And those trials with tercetropib actually were neutral. They didn't show worsening of the disease, but they didn't show any improvement or regression of the disease either. So this is another piece of disappointing information 
that, again, could be attributable to the blood pressure and other effects of torcetrabib, the molecule, but do raise questions about the benefit of CTP inhibition as a strategy for raising HDL. Well, we do know from other trials, such as the HATS trial and asteroid trial, that by raising HDL, we can see regression in coronary arteries and a little bit in carotids. So why not just pursue and find the cleanest, purest niacin possible? I'm certainly a fan of niacin. I use it a lot in my clinical practice. I agree with you that we have some data that suggests that niacin therapy does reduce cardiovascular risk. It's a little tricky because niacin lowers triglycerides, it lowers LDL, it lowers LP little a, another risk factor for heart disease. So we can't be sure that the beneficial effects of niacin are all HDL raising. But believe me, there's tremendous interest in trying to develop new molecules that act like niacin but are better tolerated in terms of the flushing effects of niacin, which we all know is the major side effect that limits niacin's use. And I think if such molecules can be found and proven to be effective, they could be a huge new way to try to target HDL and reducing risk of heart disease. Have you been involved in the development of Merck's new drug? I haven't been involved as an investigator. I have seen a lot of the data, and I think it's exciting in that it hopefully will be a way to give niacin to patients that substantially reduces the flushing, overcomes this major issue we have with niacin therapy, and by doing so, allows niacin to be used much more widely than it currently is. Recently, I read an article in Cleveland Clinic Journal about the, the dual faces of HDL, which was kind of illuminating itself, showing that you know, HDL can actually become pro-inflammatory in, instead of anti-inflammatory, and that there's some tests out there, they're not clinically available, but uh, they're out there in research. I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, what makes HDL good or bad. Yeah, so, you know, HDL didn't evolve to protect us from heart disease, clearly. It evolved for some other primordial reason, probably related to host defense. I think HDL is a component of the innate immune system. It helps to ward off certain types of infections that may not be all that relevant to our current modern life, but nevertheless reflects its function. And like any inflammation, inflammation has a plus and a minus side. Inflammation is a way that the body wards off infections and helps to repair itself. But of course, it can cause problems like in the arterial wall. So I think it's not surprising that HDL, depending on the setting, can have more of an anti-inflammatory effect or can have a pro-inflammatory effect. It's turning out a quite fascinating story, as you allude to, that people differ in terms of their HDL and even within a given person. Different HDL particles differ in terms of their inflammatory properties. And I do think this is going to be a next big part of the story, having better tools and better assays that allow us to, in a given patient, say, well, your HDL is low, but it's the good kind of HDL. Or your HDL is high, but a lot of it is pro-inflammatory and bad and then using that as additional information to make decisions about treating patients. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Daniel Rader, and we're talking about HDL and the future of HDL therapies. Dr. Rader, you mentioned that we'll be able to tell a patient that your HDL is functioning or not functioning, or it's the good kind or the bad kind. As of today... December 2007, what HDL seems to be the winner? Is it 2B? Is it 2A? Is it 3B? Well, Larry, I'm not a big fan of subfractionation of HDL and trying to infer clinical information from that. If you really look at the literature, it's all over the place. So my personal belief is that today, a clinician who wants to get more information about HDL than simply measuring HDL cholesterol, the best test you can do 
is actually the ApoA1, Apo, apolipoprotein A1. It's a widely available clinical test. And the bottom line is that in general, the higher the levels of the ApoA1, the better off the person is. It's a secondary test that we can use along with HDL to help guide us a little bit in terms of whether that HDL is good or bad in that particular patient. And will we see the HDL-raising drugs also affect ApoA1? Will they, will they do the same thing? So interestingly, to get back to CTP inhibition, CTP inhibition raises HDL cholesterol a lot, but only raises ApoA1 quite trivially or in much more minor sense. So I do think we're going to see other types of approaches that raise not just HDL but ApoA1. And one prediction might be that they might be more effective in actually reducing risk of atherosclerosis and heart disease. I know there's some mimetic peptides in development. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah. So, you know, ApoA1 is this protein on HDL. It has a particular structure, helical structure, that gives it certain properties. And it's been very tempting to mimic that structure with small peptides that then could be given therapeutically. And of course, there's a history of giving peptides therapeutically for other types of diseases. It turns out when you make these peptides, when you test them in cells and animals, you can actually mimic a lot of the properties of ApoA1 and possibly then reduce atherosclerosis. Certainly you can in animals. So the goal is, can we take these into humans, prove that they're safe, and actually over time show that they increase HDL function and actually reduce atherosclerosis. I think ApoA1 mimetic peptides are going to be one of the exciting stories over the next 10 years. And back to the HDL function tests, any idea when those will be available to you know, us, us people out in the trenches? Yeah, so we talked about inflammation, but clearly the, uh, the best understood, the best recognized HDL function is that of promoting cholesterol efflux ability to actually suck cholesterol out of cells, particularly cells that are in the vessel wall like macrophages, in this first step of so-called reverse cholesterol transport. There are now assays, not clinically available yet, that can take someone's plasma, serum, and test its ability to promote efflux from cells in culture. And I predict that those types of assays are actually going to be adapted for clinical use and that a clinician in the not-too-distant future will be able to order an assay for the efflux capacity of the patient's plasma or serum as a way of assessing the functionality of their HDL, specifically with regard to this important property. And hopefully be able to do something about it. Well, yeah, so that's the next step. Obviously, assessing risk is helpful. It allows you to make better decisions of with therapies that you know how to use and that you currently have at your disposal. But clearly, what we'd like to be able to do then is use something like an ApoA1 mimetic peptide or something that alters the HDL and actually promotes its ability to do better in terms of promoting cholesterol efflux. And that would be clearly uh, where we need to develop new therapies. Dr. Rader, what, what did we learn from the TNT study with respect to HDL? Does it still have its power to predict when, once you get an LDL down super low? Well, I think this is a very important question. In the modern era where we aggressively treat LDL cholesterol, does HDL still matter? There's been a school of thought out there for a while that once you drive LDL down, a low HDL really doesn't matter as much anymore. TNT taught us, I believe, that in the low dose of the atorvastatin, 10 milligram, there's still a very steep relationship between on-treatment HDL and risk. That is, a low HDL is still high-risk condition. In the high dose, the 80 milligram dose, there was still a relationship, and low HDL was still associated with higher risk, but it was flatter. So my personal belief is clinically that in a high-risk patient, even one with low HDL, your first step ought to be reducing LDL as aggressively as you can reasonably. And then 
in a high-risk patient, maybe go back secondarily to trying to see what you can do about raising the HDL. Here's the provocative question of the day. Let's say we have a patient who is 45 years old who has an LDL of 160, an HDL of 30, and you luckily or unluckily have a CT angiogram of that patient showing no disease whatsoever, their carotid IMT thickness is totally normal, and they have a normal family history, but all you're left with are these abnormal numbers. Do you treat that patient? In that particular case, I have to tell you, a 45-year-old man with an LDL-160 these days, given the safety and efficacy of statins, I'm going to be treating even if he has a normal CT angio and carotid IMT. But if you had changed that case and made the LDL-145 or 140, I think definitely, you know, many of us would be on the fence about whether someone like that really needs drug therapy. Dr. Daniel Rader, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Larry. Thank you for listening to Lipid Illuminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.